Hey everybody, Jonathan Doyle with you once again. Welcome back, friends, to the Supply Side Podcast. Really appreciate the privilege of your time and I hope we can really bring you some great value today. I love talking to this guy. This is his second time on the show and he's been very generous with his time and I'm really excited because Mr. Nathan Lewis has recently launched his new letter. It's called the Polaris Letter and you can find it on Substack. So get across to Substack. If you're not familiar with that platform, it is a great platform for so many people to begin to be rewarded for their excellent insights and work. So if you go across to Substack and do a search for the Polaris Letter, Nathan Lewis, you're going to find that there. He is such a gifted writer. I said to him, and you'll hear me say this in the discussion, that he had me laughing out loud in some of the things that he said. And you, you get that, but you just get such great analysis and such clear thinking. So I really want to encourage you all to check out Nathan's Polaris letter on Substack. You can also find Nathan over at newworldeconomics.com. So in this discussion, we're looking at Nathan's latest Polaris letter. We're going to be talking about hyperinflation. We're going to be talking about this great big central banking macro deficit spending bond vigilante world conflagration of debt. It's all there, and we cover some interesting stuff at the end too. We'll get a bit more philosophical, but if you have an interest in where this is all heading in how to prepare for the changing macro weather that we're going to be enduring, then you're really going to enjoy this discussion. Look, that's it from me now. Please, wherever you're listening to this, make sure you've subscribed. We'll be on YouTube too. You can come and see the video on YouTube, Supply Side Partners. You can find us there. But for now, that's it. Sit back, relax, enjoy this great discussion with Mr. Nathan Lewis. All right, Mr. Nathan Lewis, welcome back to the Supply Side Podcast. Thanks again for uh, making time for us. Great to be here. I'm stoked to have you back because you've now made a great decision to get your new letter, the Polaris letter, onto Substack. And I'm a big fan of Substack. If listeners aren't familiar with it, it's a great way for for writers, for anybody with with a great story to tell, to to get some to get a good audience and to get paid for it. So we're going to make sure we send people to the new letter. But as I said to you a moment ago, there was a couple of things that you wrote in the last one, literally laughing out loud. And I'll do those quickly. My personal favorite was when you talked about the the Japanese finance minister in 1936 suggesting to the army that they needed to cut spending and he got executed. I'd just be interesting. <laughs> he probably to didn't see think if, it was that funny. <laughs> no, he didn't. But, but it's true. Uh, I read it thinking about the if somebody tried to suggest to uh, to government that maybe stopping spending would be a good idea. At this stage of history, it doesn't seem that would go down too well. And uh, my other favorite was near the end of the letter, you, you gave a great definition of MMT, where you said MMT is an open-ended excuse for the government to print money for whatever it might like to spend money on, which will doubtless be very popular until it's not. <laughs> I like that uh, I like that turn of phrase because, yeah, when the party's on, it's very popular and until it's not. So I like yeah. those. And uh, what I want to do is give you a little introductory quote of yours here just to lead us off. The letter begins where you have this great comment about assets being overpriced, bond yields are down, but you had this quote here where you say, we are in the early stages of a monetary event worldwide that will probably result in 80% real losses in stocks, bonds, and cash over a period of five to eight years. And the essence of this event is a decline in currencies worldwide, and there's no refuge in any particular currency 
And the last thing I'll say on the intro is that you said we haven't really seen anything like this since about the 1780s around the uh, the Continental Congress. As you would agree, an 80% real loss is, is a big statement. Tell us what you're thinking. Well, it's real simple. If buy, bonds can't really go up in value, right? They're already real expensive. They could. Actually, you could have negative interest rates, but it might be a temporary thing. Stocks, uh, typically the, the valuation is very high. And if you had enough debasement of the currency, the stocks could go up a lot. But typically after their valuations have already gone down a lot, does that, does that make any sense? They become cheap and, and then they start to rise due to inflationary reasons. So you're not going to get any nominal. Not, not, it's like almost, it's almost impossible to get substantial nominal uh, increases in, at least in the US asset market. Somebody you can argue, make an argument about Taiwan or something, I don't know, some foreign market. But then if your currency loses value and 80% decline, so it's only worth one fifth as much as it is today, then your real, then your real losses are as 80% loss. And, and that's very easy to achieve. We've already done it twice, just in, in relatively recent US history. During the 1970s, the value of the dollar went from, I took $35 to buy an ounce of gold in, this, in 1970, this gold standard system. It was set up so the dollar would stabilize. It was always 35, right? It didn't fall in value. Then you had these events. And we began the floating fiat currency system in 1970, 1971, 1973, that period. And by the time all the smoke cleared, the dollar, it took about $350 to buy an ounce of gold. So it's basically a 10 to 1 decline. The dollar of the 1980s is worth 10 cents in the 1960s. Mm. So when I say 5 to 1, 80% decline, it's, it's actually kind of modest compared to what we've already done. And then in the 2001 to 2011 period, we went from about 350, that average during the 80s and 90s, to about, we stabilized around 1250 for a while, but we, we touched 1800, 1900. Five times 350 is 1750. So is that right? Yes. So again, that's about a five to one decline. This is stuff we've done. And to say that it could happen again is it shouldn't be very surprising. And also to say that it could happen when we are, I would say, some of the most extreme fiscal and monetary situation and just this loss of discipline in all aspects of the political system. It's, it seems like a pretty easy call to me. It's a really interesting point when you talk about the loss of discipline. I reached out to Chris DeMuth, who's at the Hudson Institute, and he wrote a piece, two pieces in the Wall Street Journal the last few days, and his piece on deficit spending was, I think, quite brilliant, and I'll put some links to that in the show notes. But he, this is incredible data. He said that for 181 years, the US government ran basic balanced budgets for 181 years with some small variants. And then the data that he shows, like I just looked at it and this kind of this immersion in deficit spending and in your letter, I just want to find this. You talked about, you had some great quotes from the, from the French experience thing in the 1790s from Andrew Dixon White's book. And uh, you said here, the National Assembly had from the first shown an amazing liberality to all sorts of enterprises, wise or foolish, which were urged for, and here's the key thing, for the good of the people. So I'm looking at the stimulus in the US at the moment. Is it just the same thing? Is it just, Krista Muth says that 
there is a fundamental shift in our political economy now, right? It's mm. we're promising huge amounts of transfer payments to individuals, drawing future prosperity. When does it stop? Is it is this really different simply in terms of scale? Yeah, it's it clearly everyone re- has realized that something's going on. They're just not quite sure what the consequences are because we haven't seen it before. And so far, it seems like it's been nothing. It's been party time. We, we did it last year, had it all these checks, ran these 15, you know, 15% of GDP deficits. We're doing it again this year. And it's not easy to say anything particularly bad has happened. I mean, we've had, by many measures, the, the sharpest recession since the Great Depression, 2020. But due to these government handouts, personal income actually went up. It's never happened in a recession before (laughs) because of the checks in the mail. And then with the most recent round of handouts early this year, personal income soared again to like made and he made an even bigger spike higher Mm -hmm. and uh, which we've never really seen before. Just blasting money out like that. You could argue that it was an unintended consequence of World War II because at that time they were spending money to buy bombers and stuff, but it was the last time we saw anything like that happen. And here we are just sitting around at home watching TV, right? (laughs) We're not really fighting World War II here. It's just weird. And I think that I think it, it when you read that account of France and you there's so many similarities. It took me all eight minutes to find five or six similarities that they listed there. There are so many, I could hardly stop cutting and pasting these accounts of the political process and the psychological process. What by what thinking process did we end up with a 15% of GDP deficit, not just once but twice, yeah. two years in a row? And already there's like a 10% of GDP deficit baked into the cake for the third year, but it's just because they, they passed these spending, they passed these uh, spending bills, but the actual money doesn't go out the door until the next fiscal year. There's a lot baked in even for 2022. I think it's about either eight or 10%. And it's, that's crazy. (laughs) Going back to your earlier books, it seems that if there's any sort of tax policy from the current administration it's a kind of soak the rich tax policy and having read your books like you're unequivocal that what we're looking for is low taxes and stable money but what we're going to get is as as these taxes go through the ceiling you actually get less revenue right yeah that's another thing that's happening now and some of these tax some of these tax increases are pretty big there's an increase in corporate tax, kind of undoing, half undoing the tor- Trump stuff. That in itself is maybe not such a big deal. But now they're having, they're talking about applying, I don't know if you know the complexities of the US tax code, but payroll does tax. It, does, is, any, does anyone know the complexities <laughs> of the UX, US tax code? No, <laughs> they don't. Some of these weird, one complicated thing piled up on another. They're, they're talking about applying payroll taxes now to higher incomes, which is essentially stacking on top of the income tax. But it's actually worse because payroll taxes, there's no deductions against it, right? And income taxes, there's often ways to not have income taxed. Um, and then even placing that, like, now talking about capital gains rates that are in excess of 50% in some states, and, and then taxes going up at the state level, and la di da di da. And these are some pretty big moves. They are 
probably not going to generate any revenue and they're going to have some meaningful economic slowdown effect, I think. So then you get the triple whammy, which I think there's three, three, three ways you get whammy, which I talked about in the magic formula. So you don't get, you don't really get any re- extra revenue in the last 70 years of US history. No tax increase, legislative tax increase has created any revenue, uh, sustainable increase in the revenue GDP ratio. No tax reduction has created a, a sustained decline. They spent the money thinking they're going to counterbalance it with revenue, but there is no revenue. So they just have a bigger deficit, basically what happens. What do they do when they have the bigger deficit? They're going to print the money, but they also might raise taxes some more. The next thing that happens is GDP slows down. So your revenue GDP ratios, maybe it's unchanged, but GDP is smaller because there's fewer people working and Mm. they're getting paid less. That's basically what GDP is. So your tax revenue is down, right? Instead of going up. And another thing that happens is often you might be in more in a more of a recessionary situation and actually in a recession, a more of like a cyclical recession, the revenue GDP ratio tends to decline because people are out of work, kind of changing jobs and stuff. So it's just one way after the other, right? Revenue actually tends to decline relative to what it would, you know, not necessarily decline in nominal terms because there's an upward trend to everything, but be lower than it would be if there had been no change in policy at all. But at the same time, they're matching this with more spending. And there's and then, a demographic they, issue as well. There's a demographic issue as well. Yeah, somewhat. It's, that, that's a broader picture where we have had all you know, around the world, we've had all these government institutions that have assumed this expansion of population or a certain population curve, a certain amount of young people compared to old people. And they are becoming incompatible with reality. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I personally don't think that there's any inherent there, there isn't very much inherent problem in shrinking working age population or, or a preponderance of older people possibly needing support in a society. I think those create issues that are not very, can be dealt with relatively easily, but they are incompatible with the systems that we have in place already. And of course, the first thing they're going to do is try to, try to make the existing system work and just get themselves farther in the hole. But there's a couple other problems with rising taxes. Historically, rising taxes have tended to cause currency decline for a number of reasons. One is the economy slows down, so there's an excess of money compared to the economy. The other thing is that the first thing that everyone does, when when the economy slows down, the first thing they do is pressure the central bank to have an easier policy. All these gears start turning, and to just make a long story short, higher taxes tend to lead to declining currency value, which is exactly what happened in the 70s as well. Mm. So the other thing I wanted to just, I really enjoyed this quote too. But this is back in talking about the, the French experience, which just seems reading it, reading the quote in your latest letter, it was just so pertinent. One of the parts I really liked about what's happening, what happened in France in the 1790s and is happening now. Here's the quote from uh, the book that you're citing, Inflation in France, where it says, it creates a class of debauched speculators, the Mm. most injurious class that a nation can harbour, more injurious indeed than professional criminals who the law recognises and can throttle. I like that line because Mm. it made me think of GameStop. It made me think of crypto. It's fascinating to watch the speed at which 
That's what Andrew Dixon White would refer to here as uh, a class of debauched speculators. I went on a walk the other uh, two or three days ago, and I bought some Dogecoin about a month or two ago, and I just I didn't spend much. And then I sold it relatively quickly before it jumped. So please, no one take crypto investment advice from me in a hurry. But I worked out that if I had simply put, I had about 100K sitting in an equities account. I was If I'd put that on Dogecoin instead of what I did put on it, it's $900,000 windfall in the space of four weeks. So it was a very sad and lonely walk as I walked home. I keep having these conversations with my wife about all the great things like we could have done if I'd, uh, if I'd followed the strategy. But can you just step us through a little bit about how the current fiscal and monetary environment is driving this debauched class of speculation and what the implications are? Yeah, it's almost something that we've been living in for so long that we've all gotten used to it. When you read these accounts from France, or actually in the very first book ever written about monetary topics in the West, which was called uh, De Moneta from the 14th century France, they say the same thing. <laughs> you, start, you start messing with the coinage, in this case, reducing the silver in the coinage, you get this debauched class of speculators. <laughs> the very first book that was ever written on the topic of money says the same thing. We've almost been we've almost been steeped in it for so long since 1970 that we all, we don't even have that experience of stable money to compare to, where the currency is and the all, all the effects of this on the economy and just it just it's just not there. And the way you make it's the old American dream, right? You start a business that makes goods and services that people like, and you by providing this benefit to all these happy customers, you become wealthy. And that's when the Fortune 500 was, uh, Fortune 500 was, what's the Fortune 100 that wealthiest people in America was dominated by industrialists and people who invented uh, hula hoops and stuff instead of hedge funds, instead of hedge fund guys. And so we've been so steeped in it for so long. We just, we've just, forget about Dogecoin, but the whole idea of a housing bubble is just, it's just the air we breathe now. We're just going to, we're just going to take this thing and, whamma jamma and flip it, right? Uh, you know, back in the old days, a house was something that you would build with your own hands and give it to your grandchildren. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway. And do you um, think that the farm. 2000, do you think the 2008 experience basically taught people that the Fed will backstop it? Is that kind of in the air we breathe now that the speculative impulse, uh, at least in you know the banking system, is that it doesn't matter how much we inflate the bubble there's no way the Fed's going to let it burn to the ground. Yeah, there, there is a feeling of that. An interesting talk with a friend in Europe. And this, you know, the, the Europeans are not as, this, this, the stock market is more of like, it's more like a casino. It's more like we look at cryptocurrencies, right? It's not really inherent part of day-to-day life. Because, for example, almost all the pensions are government pensions. And so it's like our... Social security system, you know, it's a pay as you go system, but it's amped up to cover the entire pension. I'd like it like an old fashioned corporate defined benefit plan, but it's the state pay as you go system. And they're not looking at their 401ks. They don't have 401ks. What they're concerned is can the government make the payments for their pension? The whole thing. It's not just a little social security. It's the whole, can you imagine the whole, their whole thing? So what do they care about? They care about the government bond market. Right. Mm, yeah. And if you see what's happened in Europe, right, it's all about the bond market. But here in the United States, we have all this stuff that is is dependent on the stock market. 
all these pension systems and, and retirements and, and personal accounts and all this stuff. So while they're got everything, all their eyes fixed on the bond market, we have our eyes fixed on the stock market because not just because, I don't know, it sucks to have own stocks and see them go down, but there's so many so many institutions that we have that are dependent on that. These state pensions and stuff, they're underwater already. And if stocks simply went to their average valuation at the last 50 years, they would have to wave the, wave the white flag. Sure. Which, so does the party stop in the bond market when, when this, when it all comes to an end? Is that where it starts? Because there's just eventual, based on the size of US deficits, that there's just a refusal by the bond market to basically take on any more of that collateral. People are sensing that right now. Now it's coming to that, just because we have these giant deficits, right? Who's on, the, who's on the buying side of this 15% of GDP? Who took down 15% of GDP in, bond, in government bonds at today's yeah. prices? Yeah. Obviously, the central bank did, but yeah. who else would? And yeah, that's, people are sensing now that's going to be a battleground. It isn't quite a battleground yet, but they, it's like the armies are teaming up on both sides. Because, and, and you can see the logic of it, uh, guy in the, a private market government bond investor says, I want to make... I want to make some money, 3% or whatever, an average bond yield. Plus, you know, you guys looking, you can't get these double digit deficits under control. You're looking like a bad credit. So let's add a credit risk on there. Plus, central bank sure is printing a lot of money these days. So there's some inflation risk. So what does it add up to? Add up to? Yeah, you could say 5%, 5%, 6%. Historically, in US history, that's what bondholders were paid when there were these concerns. It was average rate in the 1990s, and that was a happy time. The, the trauma that would take place if we were to pay bondholders a 7, 6% yield would be so great that there's obviously many incentives not to go there, not only for the simple reasons, but, but because the government now has so much debt that they'd be paying out 6% of GDP just to make the interest payments. Yeah. And that's about, a third of, that's about a third of total tax revenue. So now you guys are through a total tax and maybe three times what they are today. So that now we, we have this debt, which is what is the debt, right? 4%, 5%, 6%, 8% of GDP. And then we're going to stack on 4% more on top of that to make the interest payments. And then someone has to, so then you're going to have to find bondholders on the other side of the table every year to take down this 10, 12% of GDP and new paper flushing out of the treasury. Yeah, it's going to be a battleground, and it and we already know how it's going to work out. You know, the, the central bank's going to buy the stuff. It's already it has been buying the stuff, so we know what's going to work out. At least, I think I know. That's why I'm writing this letter. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's and let's get into the meat of the letter because I wanted to talk about the the focus of this particular edition of the Polaris letter is on hyperinflation, and. Yeah. I've got a few notes here that I wanted to go through. The first thing that I liked, look, and there's a there's a something lovely you wrote here early in the letter where you said, I want to reach out to that much larger group of people who sense that maybe something is going on and maybe they should do something, but they're not sure what. I like that because I've got plenty of friends and family who increasingly they don't want to sit next to me at family barbecues because I'm like, have you bought gold? Have you bought gold? <laughs> my mother, she's got cash sitting around. I'm going, mom, please. I said to my brothers and 
but I like what you, I like how you say that because I think there's there's just so many people who are just yes. uh, rolling along at the moment with no intimation of the slow train coming down the track. So let's talk hyperinflation. The first thing was where was the part that you said it's as simple as that. So first, how common it is. So seventy countries have had hyperinflation since 1980. Six had it in 2020, including Argentina. And I think the definition that you go from one peak government institution, and there's obviously multiple ways that you could describe hyperinflation, but 100% CPI rise over three years, at which point Mm -hmm. accounting systems break down because it's almost impossible to conduct a business if currency is moving all over the place. And then following that, we get societal breakdown. The last couple of things here, you say first, the uh, currency falls in value, then prices rise in response. It's no more complicated than that. Take us through for new listeners, sophisticated listeners, take us through your thinking around hyperinflation. Yeah. Um, people, they, they, they just hear, they t- tend to hear just these kind of a few individual situations like Germany 20s, like Zimbabwe, yeah. they probably guess that it's, it's happened six or seven times in the 20th century or something like that. Because that's you hear about six or seven stories. But it's actually very common. That kind of the billion dollar banknote kind of hyperinflation where it's, it's you get- Wheelbarrows of money. The, 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 where the prices go up a thousand times in the space of 12 months. That is not so common just because- most places managed to bring it to a halt before then. But there's a wide range. I, I wanted to bring up this idea. There, we say inflation, and we use the term hyperinflation. And then there, there are actually accounting standards for hyperinflation. And you could argue that we should have some inter- intermediate steps in here, but that's what we have. We have this, we say inflation, then we say hyperinflation. And there's a whole accounting se- series of accounting practices that kick in when you raise the flag and say we're in hyperinflation. And this came about because you have these multinationals like Coca-Cola or Pfizer or Ford who are in Peru or Chile or Ecuador, uh, Venezuela. Poland or something like that, selling cars and selling Coke. And they say, we can't figure out profit and loss <laughs> because the CPI is up 50%. We got this on the books and the old price. Anyway, so they wanted some accounting guidelines. And so it's just interesting out of, out of coming out of real experience at what point they put that line at the point says the old accounting rules is broken. We need some kind of new thing. And, it, and they decided, they put their heads together and they decided it was a 100% rise in CPI over three years, which is no. not really that much. No. It's about 28% a year, 27% a year, which works out to about 2% a month. So now, you know, it's not prices triple in a month, 2%. We've probably had 2% in the last month. So that's one way to think about it. And if you look at that measure of hyperinflation, if you take that definition, you find out that there are dozens and dozens of countries all over the world that have had that. Almost every country in Latin America, almost every country in Eastern Europe. And there's also milder forms of inflation where it's just kind of like 15% every year. It's not, it's not 100% in three years, but there are other, there's even a class of countries below that where they just have this kind of chronic inflation. So the point is that it's very common, which, and, which means rationally that many governments get themselves in these situations, including the United States or, or the American colonies. Many times. And just on that, as you say that, and I want you to keep going, that you just said governments get themselves in the situation. This is a quote from you. I thought this was brilliant. You said, for a long time, 
people thought, oh, I'll, do, I'll go from here. You say the core element that causes hyperinflation is that the government is printing money to pay its bills. And then you say this, for a long time, people thought that this was so obviously a bad thing to do that only the sorriest governments would even consider it. Mm. And that struck me because this is like international contagion, isn't it? Like the most here in Australia, we've got a, a traditionally very conservative government that's just, we had a budget last week and it's just throwing money everywhere. Mm. But I like that line where you say that this was historically, everybody thought this was such a stupid thing to be doing that only the most banana republic governments would do it. Yeah, yeah. And there, there was even that line from the book about France too. They said the same thing in 1790. This is so stupid. We did this 70 years ago. It was a disaster. Everybody knows you do not do this. <laughs> and they said, yeah, but we want to. Anyway. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we need free stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just obviously the wrong thing to do. So, you know, so I should get, mention, so what does hyperinflation look like? From, I, I like to think of it from the outside. Right, not for there's one perspective from the person who's experiencing it, and another per- perspective from the person who's outside. Like we're outside of the hyperinflation in Venezuela, right? We tend to say, "Oh, Venezuela." I don't know they speak Spanish, so it doesn't really count. <laughs> so common in Latin America that can't happen here. I-, I would say let's take Britain. Let's just take Britain. Germany used to be one of the most reliable currencies in the world for hundreds of years, and then it had hyperinflation in the twenties. Uh, let's take Britain. What would Britain look like if it had a hyperinflation? Basically, it's real simple. The, the value, the first thing that happens, the driver is the value of the currency declines. Now, there might be a good reason why the value of the currency declines because they're printing more and more of it, for example. But that's basically what you see, the exchange value of the currency declining. So let's just imagine British pound is now worth about $1.30. It goes to one-tenth of its present value. It goes to 13 cents. Obviously, prices are going to have to go up in Britain, Right. British worker goes from whatever it is, twenty, you know, thirty dollars an hour in U.S. dollars to three dollars an hour. Same guy is just going to sit here there and take that. Obviously, the price of gasoline is going to go up ten times in Britain, and, and thing, and then things start to flow in from there. So now let's do it again. Let's go from thirteen cents. It goes to one cent. British pound now worth a dollar thirty is ten years from now. Let's say worth a penny, <laughs> right? It just makes it just it's just, it just so obvious from the outside that a car, an apartment, it's got to go up in price, right? Five times, ten times, twenty times, a hundred times. It probably won't fully reflect the declining value. Won't, won't, price won't go up one hundred thirty. Price of gasoline will go up one hundred thirty times because that's a worldwide commodity. But price of a property won't go up one hundred thirty times because who wants to live there? <laughs> but it's going to have to go up. So that's what hyperinflation looks like from the outside. The, the, the value of the currency goes from $1.30, let's say, to a penny. And this happens. A Japanese yen used to be worth the same as a dollar. Now it takes 120 of them or 110 so what, of them. What is the fundamental driver of that hypothetical currency decline? Simply right. money printing? Basically, yes. There's two aspects to it. One is what you might call a decline in demand, a revulsion, panicking out of the currency which can cause it to decline a lot, vastly out of proportion to the actual increase in the money supply. So let's say they kind of get to the brink, right? People are going, what the heck's going on? And then they take, then they just go too far. The money supply increases. Everyone's wringing their hands and stuff. Money supply increases 30%. And they say, okay, that's it. 
I'm out of here. Whatever they do, they buy gold, they move their assets to another country, they pick up and leave, I don't know, whatever they do. They, and the result of this is the currency falls to, the currency falls by 70%, falls to 30% of its original value. So it, it's, not, it's, I, out of, it's out of proportion. And is that being driven by Forex markets? That's basically the global Forex markets are picking up that panic. They're picking up the money printing, and then the Forex markets are going to drive a currency decline. Essentially, yes. So the point is that, so you know, the exchange rate, so the volume of the currency might go up 30%, which they got away with in the past. They, didn't, they did it last year, nothing bad happened. They do it again this year, and it's it just, you know, the, more than a straw, but that was, they took a step too far. And, and if, if you look at internally, the price of foreign currencies goes up 200%. So they said, oh, it's, 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 this is speculators, it's the markets, it's, yeah. it's completely out of proportion to the actual increase in the money supply. But if that's all it was, if they stopped, you know, so, so if they stopped printing money, they said, okay, that's it. Obviously, we went too far, we're going to stop, right? <laughs> then... Then eventually, if in, and the, the amount of money did not increase anymore, it's fixed. Let's just hypothesize. Then, yeah, you know, then the, the currency is not going to fall a lot. It, it just can't go to zero while the supply is flat. It'll go up and down, but it's not going to just implode. But what happens is now the currency is worth a lot less, right? It's only worth one third of what it used to be. So they now, to, to finance their deficits and so forth, they got to print a lot more of it. And mm -hmm. so it's this, they get into this cycle of increasing supply. And that is what, where you get these 50 to one, hundred to one, you know, thousand to one means you know, the, the currency is worth 1,000th of what it was before. Thousand to one declines. Mex Mex the, just to give you an idea, the, the value of the Mexican peso declined from, I think it was 28 to the dollar in 1980 to 2,400, or actually is the other way around, 20, 24 to the dollar to 2,800 in, in 1990. So it's about a hundred to one decline. Most Americans weren't even aware of it. So that, that get an idea of, I, I just to get the wheels in people's heads turning, what if the British pound went to 10 cents and then it went to one cent mm -hmm. in the space of, let's say, 10 years? Just exactly what happened to Mexico. What would that look like? So, I, so obviously, you know, if, if, you are, if you are investing in British asset, in assets, the bonds and the cash, the bank deposits... It went to worth a penny, <laughs> yeah. right? And the stock market typically declines about 90% in these situations, which means, so if you get a 100 to 1 decline in the currency and you get a 10 to 1, 90% decline, 10 to 1 decline in the stock market, that means the stock market, the nominal value of the stock market goes up 10 times. Yeah. So you have to get in this, this funny mental state where you lose 90% on stocks while stocks go up 10 times. Yeah, right? gotcha. Very strange thing. I wanted to ask you just on uh, something Jim Rickards is big on, which I'd, I'd like your input on, is that he argues that the increase in the base money supply doesn't drive inflation. He believes that it's all to do with velocity of money. Can you give us your thoughts on that? Because he argues if money is just printed but sits on balance sheets, it doesn't actually drive inflation. It's all to do with velocity. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, velocity is simply the ratio of some measure of the money supply, let's say base money supply and GDP. If the if base if money supply goes up, but GDP doesn't go up a lot, 
then the, just by definition, the velocity goes down. So it doesn't really mean a whole lot. I, I, don't, I don't like, I don't like the focus on velocity, but uh, we've, you can certainly have large increases. So let's just take a health, maybe that's not a good example, but you can have large increases in the amount of money without having the currency decline in value. So it, forget about velocity, forget about the CPI. Just think about the exchange with the foreign exchange rate, for example, of the currency. It's when the, the foreign exchange value of the currency goes down a lot, that's when you're in trouble. And obviously, obviously at some point, if you keep increasing the supply, you're going to get that. Yeah. So the question is some of the steps in between. We've had, a, I didn't go into this a lot in the letter, but I did mention it. We've had a very unusual situation worldwide because we basically, there was this long, funny cycle of bank regulation. So a lot of the money in the economy is held in banks. That's the Basel um, III stuff you mentioned, right? It's Basel III stuff. So mm. in the 50s, banks held about 10 cents for every dollar of deposits. There's a dollar in your bank account. And they would loan out 90 cents and they'd keep 10 cents just in case, because you might come to the window and say, Hey, I want some money back. And they'd have to use that 10 cents and to give it to you. And basically through a a lot of, the problem is they didn't make any money on that 10 cents. The bankers will say, if I could loan out this 10 cents, make some more money. And so over a period of 30 years, 40 years, they figured out how to get that down and down and down and down and down. So it it, got it. I don't actually remember what the figure was, but it was well under one cent for every dollar of deposits because they could go to the money market and borrow. So yeah. they said, if this guy shows up and wants his money back, we don't have any money, but I can borrow it immediately. Yeah. immediately if ultimately, if necessary from the Fed itself, you can borrow it. So that allowed him to maximize the profitability. That blew up in everyone's face in 2008. So, and, and what banks had to do because they all wouldn't loan to each other because they all thought they were going to go bust. Mm-hmm. So that system went up in flames. They, so they had to borrow from the Fed. Yeah. And that's what that was, even if you remember that process, but there's huge, like trillions of dollars of discount lending, which is yeah. direct lending to banks from the Fed. Discount window. Yeah. yeah and, they, and then they said, they, they stuck around the table, all the big bankers, hey, I'm not going to trust you guys for a long time. So obviously we're going to be in the situation for a while. Let's just write it into regulation, which they did in 2010. That was Basel three, mm-hmm. and they phased it in 2019. So they cr- basically they created this regulatory framework where they said we're going to go back to the 50s. We're going to carry 10 cents and every for every dollar of deposits, or basically is what it was. And that's what they did. Well, that 10 cents didn't exist, <laughs> mm-hmm. so the central banks had to create it, which is exactly what they did with the, with the initial panicky discount window lending. But they just formalized the process and they phased it all in. So the base money supply increased enormously. The base key went back to a 1950s level because they instituted this 1950s style regulation. And, and in the 50s, it was actually regulated. They were required to keep 10 cents. And that kind of fooled everybody because they saw all this money being printed, metaphorically printed, actually it's a mm. digital account, but it's almost the same thing. Um, they say, oh, all of our economic theory is wrong and all this stuff. And, and in fact, the, the value of the dollar did decline. It was about $850 per ounce of gold, and then it declined to about $1,800 a day. So it wasn't entirely harmless. But there was no kind of, a lot of economic theory was this monetary theory, which, is, which has always been wrong, but it just the, the wrongness of it displayed itself because 
the the percentage increase in the in the amount of money was so completely out of whack with the you know percentage increase in CPI or nominal GDP or some other thing. But what happened was even at the end of 2019, there there was a substantial the 2019 the agreement they wrote they signed into law in 2010 was fully implemented and, and the banks were required to have this 10 cents and uh, they're still short of money. There was still only eight cents in the system and they had to yeah. scramble around at the end of 2019 to make the regulatory hurdles. So there was even a shortage then. And then there was this in 2020, there was again, this huge expansion in the money supply. And to make a long story short, it appears that by the end of 2020, two things that happened. One is they filled in that, pr- that prior 2019 deficit, the, the lack of money. And then the other thing that happened was banks let, made a lot more loans. Remember all those loans they're making? Yeah. All those. So because they're making more loans, they had to have more cash just because of the rules. For every, every 90 cents of loans, you need 10 cents of cash. So they had to raise the cash for that too. So to, to summarize this complex topic, by the end of 2020, it looks like that whole thing was done, right? Yeah. Banks had plenty of cash, but it was not obviously way too much. And the, the, the dollar had fallen somewhat in value. We, we had that big move from 2018 to 2020. $1,300 per ounce of gold to $1,800 or so. But it wasn't, it wasn't a hyperinflationary blowout. And in, in all the chaos, it was not a big deal. And so that's kind of why I raised the hyperinflation flag today instead of some years ago, is because we don't have that the banks sucking up the money anymore, arguably. We're going to have to see what happens, but they seem to be completely topped up. At the moment, which the government seems to have all discipline and say, look, we proved over 10 years, you could just print money like crazy and woohoo, Yahoo, right? Now they're going to, now they're going to be dumping more money than ever before on the economy through the central bank printing press. And there's really no good reason for it. And And is it also true that the primary dealers are getting paid interest on those reserves too? So now that they're all capitalized, like... They're getting paid. Is it safe to say they're just being paid? They're paying interest on excess reserves, so they're being paid interest on funny money that they that wasn't productively created by anybody, right? They are, yeah. Um, they are paying int- being paid interest on those reserves, which is another kind of new thing, and it it might play a big role going forward. It it completely changes the banking dynamic because if you increase the money paid on the reserves become more attractive, right? You can make 3%, no risk with these bank cash payments held at the federal, at the central bank, which didn't exist before 2009 in all of the US history. Then the Fed has to print to pay those interest. Not those- exactly. It's making interest income from its government bonds. Right. But it's, 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 so it's, it's, but the interesting point is if they're making the interest income on the government bonds, but they're paying it out on the reserves, then they're, then those bonds become, how would I explain this? How can I explain this in words? Hmm. Basically, the treasury has to make those payments. Before, when they weren't paying interest on reserves, the, the Federal Reserve would theoretically, that's what they say. I, I don't really believe them, but the story is, they take the interest income from, the, from their government bonds and they give it back to the treasury. 
So it's as if they didn't pay anything interest at all. A bond where you don't pay any interest, it's a lot like a bond that doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we threw it down a hole and it disappeared <laughs> because we're paying them interest and then they give us interest back and they never mature because they keep rolling them over. So that's the money printing process. But now if they're taking that interest income and they're paying out to banks, then it's not coming back to the treasury. So those bonds exist again. I just have this um, so- image in my mind of walking down Main Street, USA, and and saying to the average American citizen something like, you know those banks that almost blew up the world in 2008? Now mm-hmm. they've got vast amounts of funny money, which they're being paid interest on. For I just think that would be an interesting, because it just seems that, that it's almost no one knows about this, right? You just don't hear it talked about a great deal. One of the reasons, one of the things is no one knows what to say about it. Because even the Wall Street guys who are actually show up to work each day to think about this, not sure what, how to, what to make of it. I have my opinion, which I described in this Basel Three story and all this stuff, and it's my way of making sense of it all. But it's a pretty weird situation, and, and it's hard to come to a conclusion. You talk to some other guy who's also supposed to be some big monetary expert, and they come up with some completely different kind of thing. If I've Obviously, learned I one I'm, thing, I think I'm right and I think they're wrong, but I, I can yeah, understand like, why people are confused. If, if I've learned one thing in my journey in macro, <laughs> and, and as, as many listeners would know, I started from scratch about a year, 18 months ago. That's the best way to start. Yeah. I just, if there's one thing that I've learned, it's that I just for every strong case for something, somebody else has a strong case. In the opposite direction, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I just, I'd love to get us as close to the truth as possible because it's just someone has to be right eventually. So I can, I can, having been involved in this space for twenty five years or so, I can tell you where some of the pitfalls are. Yeah. But one, you know, to, 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 to not start that discussion because it would take a week. One thing I've learned is that academic economists, most of the people who get paid to do econ- economics, are academics. Yeah, and. As we all kind of, as we know from all the academic studies, but it's particularly true in economics, a lot of it's dogma. It's like the dogma of a church, yeah, which has some basis in reality, but it's also it's a lot of nonsense, which exists because of institutional uh, a need for it or an institutional need for homogeneity or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and there there's just the most horrendous idiot nonsense that just persists for year after year from the academic economists because it's dogma. Yeah. It's like your, your quote about the MMT stuff. It's just, I think you captured it beautifully. It's a wonderful excuse to, to print money and it's a great idea until it's, it's very popular until it's not. Um, well, yeah, you know, to you, yeah. I've got, you might appreciate this. This is, this has been my, my go-to recently, Thomas Sowell's. Oh basic, yeah. I, I like him. I, He's good. Yeah. I just, he's just such a straight shooter and he's just outside the tent because he was a Marxist. And then obviously he's African American and, and he just writes so simply and beautifully. And listen, a couple of key things I wanted to ask you as we wrap up reading Dan Oliver's letter today, something resonated with what you're talking about. He said that it's not necessarily money printing or the the scale of base money that's necessarily bad. If what's backing it up, if the collateral is of high quality. And he starts off talking about, as you would, as you talk about, it was originally backed by gold. But he said that where we're heading is that the collateral backing up the currency is just getting worse and worse. Is that accurate? 
I probably wouldn't put it in those terms. I, I think that's a little bit metaphorical. But ultimately, the collateral, so to speak, backing a currency is the institution. What are the people in charge going to do? What are their ideas? What are their thinking processes? What are their political pressures? For a long time, the United States had a gold standard policy and a pretty good record of maintaining it. That's, that was your guarantee. Then they had, since 1970, we've had a floating fiat currency, but one that has been better than almost all the others. Mm. Although the dollar today, I think, is worth about 1 50th of what it was worth in 1960. It beats, nevertheless, losing 90%, 98% of your value beats almost all the competitors. Yeah. <laughs> but now we, the, the backing, so to speak, behind our currency is the actions of the people involved. And it's pretty goofy. I think you people just, it's going to, it's going to, I think it's going to come to a, to tell you how these things develop. I've seen a lot of currency breakdown moments. What typically happens is there's a breakdown, right? Currency drops 20%, I don't know, something like that. And then everyone see, watches to see what the government and central bank does. And that's the moment, right? Mm-hmm. They either get their act together, they do, they do some, some, something effective to fix the problem, or they flail around like idiots, or they, they make the problem worse, or throw gasoline on the fire, or whatever they do. That's the moment. And th- that's the point at which you, you lose 20% and you recover 10%, and, and so you've only lost 10%. It's not a big deal. Or you lose 20% and you look at them, you say, you know what? These guys are idiots. Let's get the heck out of here. And in fact, why well, yeah. don't we just short it in huge size? And then it drops 80%. Right. So, and look, well, and then and the money supply hasn't really changed. Yeah. Two weeks but have gone you, by, and money supply is the same, but that's well, the this moment. Is, this is a really important point. I think you, you capture it beautifully in how you express it there. There will come a moment when the house of cards begins to topple and you say, everybody's watching to look at what they can do. Yeah. Let's come back to our Japanese finance minister in 1936. Like, it, it seems to me that the obvious thing is to put your hand up and say, we have vast future-funded things that we can't pay for. We've developed a system of vast transfer payments. It's utterly unsustainable, and we have to cut spending by 40% next Tuesday. I mean, that that fixes it, but you get complete social breakdown. So when you say... Everyone's looking at what they can do. Apart from massively cutting spending, what, what can they do? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think people are a lot more resilient than governments give them credit for. I, th- I think if you can make big changes and if it's pretty clear that the outcome is a po- is positive one, then they'll, people will tolerate it. I think I would like to. I would like to look more into the details of Zimbabwe because I was actually involved there a while, and I should know more about it than I do. Yeah. But I think one of the problems there is they got into this pattern where thirty percent of the entire working population worked for the government. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, not all of them did something useful, and of course, not very surprisingly, they ended up with fiscal problems, and so they ended up printing money. And obviously, the solution was to fire about seventy-five percent of those people, and. I think moves like that, if they can see the, if they can see the problem and, and see the solution, what we're just going to have to get rid of 75% of the people because yeah. there's no real reason for them to be there. 
then they'll people will accept that. And so that's not such a big deal. But we're not, and I think we will get to that point in the United States when we have to, but we're not at that point yet. And, and that's how, that, of course, that's how governments get into these hyperinflationary situations. Just as I said, in, in France in 1790, they had some yeah. problems. They could have been fixed. But today, it seems like it's so much easier just to print money. 100%. <laughs> right? oh, it's funny. I was, I was in Zimbabwe in 95 and spent a, a lot oh, of time there in yeah. 95 and before it got really bad. And uh, yeah, it's interesting you say that because I remember seeing so many government employed kind of security guards they're just on every corner and there was, like you say there was just so much so many people drinking from the government trough and i live in a government town here in the capital city here in australia and it's just yeah there's just, <laughs> the expansion in the public sector has been quite extraordinary and i'm just hoping none of my friends listen to this episode and hear me talking like that because interesting I, I caught up with an executive yesterday and she was telling me a story about a friend who had been in private enterprise and went into the public sector into a what's called the Australian Digital Transformation Office. Mm. So this government body was responsible for creating a you know wonderful new digital future. And this guy said to to the person I was talking to, they said he was there for two years, two years in the digital transformation office, and he was losing his mind because he said they were two years in and nothing had happened like nothing like he just said i can't do this i can't keep going in there every day now i know there's many great people maybe listening who, who work in the public sector and do a great job but i often think of what would happen if we had a much smaller public sector and this vast number of people were forced into the private economy and all that energy and capacity and insight would would just be would be unleashed in a productive economy End, end of sermon from me. Look, I want to ask you a couple last things. Just, just about to finish Jordan Peterson's new book, which is quite good. And I was on a, another walk and I listened to his interview with a guy, Professor Tooney, I think it's spelled T-U-N-Y, who's from, he's attached to the Cato Institute, but he's also with an interesting website called Human Progress or globalprogress.com. And they do an extensive data set. I think they've got 2,000 data sets on their website showing how the world is getting better and better. And it's a really interesting interview, and I'll put it in the show notes because it's worth watching. And, yeah, it's fascinating. Things like absolute poverty has gone through the floor. I think when Reagan took office, it was hovering still globally around 50% or 40%. Now it's down to you know something like 10%. It's just there's all these indicators that are really positive. And as I was listening to it, I thought the world in some measure seems to be getting a lot better. There's less war, there's better health, child mortalities, infant mortality is better, the environment's actually being looked after in many positive, all these sorts of things. If that data is true, and how do we reconcile this conversation we're having with that? And if the world's getting better, is it simply that we're on a sort of fourth turning precipice and we are heading for some debt-fueled global configuration do you, do you think the world is getting better or are we really heading for something profound the world for the most part has gotten better the world is those five developed worlds about a billion people <laughs> there's eight billion people in the world uh, there's the there, there's the first tier of developing economies which has expanded enormously china and to some degree india and also the 
other places in Asia and, and much of Latin America. Much of Latin America was quite prosperous in the 50s and 60s, but then they had this total, just absolute disaster in the 80s, hyperinflation throughout the, throughout the continent. And hyperinflation's end when people starve. Yeah. <laughs> it's real bad. So that kind of raised all those things. Yeah, the, Africa, for example, Africa was under British rule and it was prosperous in a colonial way. And then they handed all these countries to their local people and they were independent and they didn't have any history of modern government. So a lot of them went communist because that was just that, that if you just. It was the vibe. (laughs) Yeah. Because, because actually a lot of tribal societies are semi-communist, semi-socialist because anyway, but it doesn't scale up as we know. Every nuclear family is communist and, and, but then that you can't scale that up. So there was all this disasters in Africa because there was a common problem, all these issues, the communist sort of issues. And there's been a lot of success in Africa recently in the last, I don't know, 20 years, uh, hearing about Botswana and Tanzania and so forth. They've figured out this capitalism thing and they're generating some some positive stuff. But population too. Yeah. In the 50s, you had this billion people or less, 500 million people of the developed world and then it was dark everywhere else. There was nothing going on in Asia. Places like Malaysia and Thailand were just subsistence rice agriculture. And they didn't have electricity. They didn't have automobiles. It was water buffalo and I mean, stoop labor. And yeah, things have gotten a lot better that way. But that's the world. You know, it's, it's the bottom half that's gotten a lot better. And But us in the first world, I think. It's a mixed bag. It's the fourth turning for us. What the result will be in, in Kenya... Uh, or Nigeria, which Nigeria is now has a population of something like 80 million people. I don't know. I'm not sure. It's, yeah. it's a whole different cycle. Yeah, it's. I think I might have mentioned this to you in our last discussion. Ross Douthat's new book, The Decadent Society, is very good on this. He is, he's known as the only conservative person on the entire staff of the New York Times, but he his latest book's very good on this. And the, his concept of decadence isn't so much around profligate pleasure, but running out of energy in the sense of, he argues that that the first world thrived on exploration and you look at the US and the space program and he said that part of the problem is we've run out of frontiers. We've run out of a spark to drive us forward. You see a comfortable, almost innovated first world culture that doesn't have much to strive towards. Yeah, so, I, well, we, we could... I don't know how much time we have left, but as that's another interesting topic of mine, which I call um, the end of heroic materialism. Yeah, And there was a wonderful 1969 BBC documentary. It's like a 10, 13 part series called Civilization hosted by Kenneth Clark. It's very yeah. famous. It is famous. Uh, even, yeah. even now people, it's even now you go back and watch it on Netflix because it's, it's really worthwhile. And he's, and Kenneth Clark entitled the last episode, Heroic Materialism. And it's basically, he included, it's basically from the industrial revolution forward. Let's 1780s, yeah. 1820s, the first, you know, whole up to the present day. And this is the time when we didn't build cathedrals, we built suspension bridges. Yeah. Right. There were enormous advances during that time, but it's done. We don't need, we, we, we don't need any more suspension bridges. We don't need better suspension bridges. We did it. Yeah. So then, now we're running out of ideas. At first you build a suspension bridge and then you get, then you build another suspension bridge and then you build a better suspension bridge. And <laughs> then you need some new ideas. And that's yeah. where we are, essentially. We've done that. And so, I, but at the other hand, there's so many aspects of society 
which is are just catastrophically bad, like the visual arts. Yeah. Go to any contemporary art museum. It's basically it's either metaphorical vomit or it's literal vomit. <laughs> yeah. All these human civilizations in the past had no problem painting pretty pictures. <laughs> yeah. No difficulty with that. So that's the reason we can't do it. One example. One of my big uh, focuses has been what I call urban design, city design. You go to all these incredibly, these pre-1900 and even pre-1800 cities, whether it be Kyoto or it's Lyon, France, or it's Santorini, Greece, or Athens, or something like that. They're all beautiful, and they're all beautiful kind of in the same way, even though they're vastly different cultures. And But for some reason, even though we have they used to have to stack bricks by hand. And you know how hard it is to make concrete if you don't have a concrete factory and you have to be like build it with a charcoal fire? I've, I looked into the Roman recipe for concrete. It's pretty tough. It was so difficult to build, to build things, but they built such beautiful things and they lasted for thousands of years. Yeah. And we have every advantage, but we just build the most hor- horrendous crap and we tear it down in 20 years because we can't stand the sight of it anymore. And we yeah. want to build some more horrendous crap. And we all know this. We've been complaining about it for a long time. But... I think that we got to stop building suspension bridges, <laughs> make a nice neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. And, and when people change their focus, they're going to realize, first of all, just making one nice neighborhood, just a nice place to live, just a nice place to live, is as difficult yeah. for us as making a suspension bridge was in, in 1850. <laughs> Super difficult. Yeah, he, uh, and then once, yeah. once fi- someone finally does it, it'll be like this amazing mind-bending breakthrough. Even the French can't do it. Even the Greeks can't do it, right? They can. They have their old towns, but they can't build new ones. It's going to be this mind-bending breakthrough, and they're going to build do it again, and they're going to make a better one. And it'll, you know, we'll spend 200 years getting back to where we were in 1800. So, so the funny thing is, all those, all those cities... Well, hey everybody, Jonathan with you again. I really hope you did enjoy that great discussion with Nathan Lewis. Always a joy to have him on the show. I learn so much. Cities, Athens or Paris, in at the beginning of the heroic materialist age in 1800, they had beautiful buildings, but everything else was horrible. They had horrible sewage. They had horrible water quality. They had horrible air quality. There were animals dying in the streets. People threw trash out of their windows. (laughs) There was disease everywhere. All these problems we solved, and now if we just combine the two, we can get their aesthetic sense with our civic, our plumbing and uh, sanitation. We'll have something new that has never been created before. It'll be great. (laughs) I I used to have a a Latin statement on my email signature, Pulcatrud and Salvabita Mundus, which is from Dostoevsky, which was, the world will be saved by beauty. And it's, I think that was a cultural crying out for it, even if it's that transcend, transcendental need for truth, beauty, and goodness that, yeah, you could apply it to anything. I look at the shadow banking system and it's, it's not pretty. It's ugly. It's, de- deception is by its nature ugly. Stealing is by its nature ugly. So yeah, maybe beauty is the new frontier in a whole lot of areas. Let me, let's finish up. Last thing was you write in the letter, there's some great stuff just on strategy and this is basically some gold bullion, some silver if you can, and you write some great stuff on some of the mining, some of the mining companies. So, can you give us a quick summary for people listening on if we're going to get a hyperinflationary event? What are smart people going to do? Yeah, this is not for the silver stackers that have been doing this for ten years because you know you know the story. But there are so many people out there, and not just people, but giant institutions and pension funds and everybody. 
That's why I start the letter with everybody owns all the assets. So if you want to know what everyone owns, just look at all the assets. Yeah. Everybody's got these and these 60, 40 stock portfolios. Yeah. Stock and bond portfolios. And let me, I just took the example. Just think about Britain. British pound goes from a buck 30 to a penny. How's this, how's the British stock market going to do in us dollars? Probably going to get, you know, pulverized. How's the British bond market going to do in us dollars? It's going to vaporize. It's going to disappear completely. It's hard to predict the future. But you have to have something in your portfolio that's going to withstand an event like that. And historically, the go-to asset has always been gold bullion. When Roman families, even today, they dig up these hordes of coins in Italy. That was less by some Roman family that the family's gone. They, they never dug it up themselves. Who knows yeah. what happened to those guys? Coins are still there. But why do they do that? Why do you take money and bury it in the ground? It's because all their other assets, their cows and their real estate, their, their banks in, in Rome, and their banks, all that stuff got blown away. That's what, you know, the, the gold is what lasted. So for thousands of years, humans have known this, that, that gold and, and silver is much more volatile now, but it wasn't so volatile in the past, are the things that will definitely make it to the other side. Yeah. And then from there, you can get more sophisticated, but you have to have something. And some, some, just think about it, allocation. How much of your portfolio you want to put in stuff that will survive a and B potentially benefit from a major currency event. You just pick an allocation: five percent, ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent, maybe fifty percent. Yeah. Let me ask you. My thesis is simply this: and having studied crypto economics at Oxford, I'm like, I th- I think there's no way in hell that sovereign governments and central banks are going to let individual cryptos win uh, yeah. because if they do. The world as we know, it's over. Seniorage is gone. All of that stuff's gone. I, I just, whether they regulate it to death or they outlaw it. So in a world of you know, highly likely central bank digital currencies, can you see a hyperinflationary collapse leading to the reestablishment of a gold standard? Because a critique would be gold is done, gold is over. We're going to have CBDCs. They're going to build some new clever blockchain-based system. Do you still in your heart of hearts see an emerging gold standard at some point in the future? Yeah. There's a lot of scenarios and theories. People say we're just going to go to the new world order and there'll just be one global currency of tyranny, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Historically, what has happened is, I mean, just imagine if you, historically what has happened is you, things blow up and then they go back, then they go to gold. Even, even Mao Zedong in China communist guy, the nationalist government be- in the, during the civil war of the 40s, hyperinflated the currency. Even that guy went to gold. <laughs> um, because what are you going to do? Everything's up in flames. All the politicians lie all day, which I, I had the example of Rudy Haverstein in, 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 in Germany. They tell all these lies. What are you going to do? Oh, we're just going to have other government people Run the currency. <laughs> That's right. You, you, you can trust these guys. Here's some new ones. These we've got. Guys. We picked them. We handpicked them. Yeah. The other guys no, are terrible, but say, these I'm, guys. I'm going to trust the stupid metal, and I don't trust you guys at all. Uh, Metal's yeah. always worked. So that they tend to want to say, we're going to get the human element out of the currency. And that, and then gold, gold is the alternative. Yeah. Remember, it, in the when the U.S. Constitution was written in late 1780s, there had been a hyperinflation. The 
previous government, the Continental Congress, Congress. printed money to pay its bills and blew the currency away into confetti. And that was actually after a hundred years of all the state governments, basically you know, the, the, the colonial governments, uh, the colonies, basically doing the same thing repeatedly, you know, over and over again, they pay their soldiers in paper currency and they would lose, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And so they actually wrote into the constitution, it's in there in article one, section 10, only silver, gold and silver coins shall be legal tender in all transactions. Now, yeah. it, and, it, and it never actually happened. There were paper currencies in the United States from the beginning. But they were minor, they were private. But they were so serious about it, they said, you know, we just want metal coins. Yeah. <laughs> That's these people, the same people who had hyperinflated the currency, who had a hundred years of paper currencies, they said, nope. We're going to kick the habit. And uh, that's what tends to happen. That's historically, that's what happens. And just on that, I, I think it was George Washington who made the point that it was utterly reprehensible for any government to create debt that couldn't be paid off in its own lifetime. He's, the idea was that to, to, yeah. to ship that to future generations, Washington thought was the most, the, the worst thing government could do. And that's, look, now that is just the Kool-Aid, right? Yeah. One of the things we might, we have to figure out some solution to this because you can't just ban, you can't just have a constitution amendment that says you balance budget amendment because what happens when you have a war? But <clears throat> be nice if we can work out some way to, to put a lid on this. Uh, but it's fundamentally a moral question, right? Like it fundamentally, I guess it's hard now because the spending commitments are so extreme that the essence of political economy is that any politician knows that he, he goes to an election with an austerity platform, he, he but, but that goes to the morality of the people, right? Like a moral populace will vote. This is back to Jude Wininski's take on political economy that really politicians, the best politicians are the ones that present to the electorate what the electorate actually wants, which was counterintuitive for me because I always thought that basically a Politicians were essentially salespeople who just came up with ideas and had to sell them. But Wininsky's take is different: is that that really the yeah, like I said, the best politicians figure out what the populace is trying to tell them. So I guess at the root of it, if you don't have a moral populace, the people that kind of think, you know what, I didn't work for this payment, I don't deserve this payment, I need to go and work harder to get what I want. How do you change it without that kind of dynamic? Ultimately. Yeah. Um, at some point, you have to. You, you, all the founders say one reason we can get away with this utopian system, right? It, the Constitution was, by the standards of its time, this crazy dream, is because they, of the morality, the high morality of the American people. And they said, all right, uh, you can't just do this anywhere. And we've seen it just hasn't worked in Latin America, for example. They just screwed up once a generation. But getting to your question, getting to your, your questions, I spend, I'm not, I'm from a kind of, when I put my policy hat on rather than my investing and in hat, dealing with current events, investing, but go a little ways down the way. At this time, the house is already on fire. You're, you're not going to change anyone's minds. Everything's going into historical, not quite inevitable, but consequences, historical consequences. But I, I think about, I tend to focus, and that's what almost everyone's focused on, 95% of the people analyzing this current event. But I like to think about the next step. 
okay, then what? Everything goes to hell. Then what? And I think it's good to have a plan for that time so you don't end up with <laughs> communism. And I, my plan is very simple. It's basically the magic formula. It's actually the, the reason I wrote that book was, not, was to give a plan for the, the period that comes afterwards is to say in the United States, for example, let's go back to the original federal model, the actual, what it actually is written in the constitution, which is federal government has a certain, it's certain roles and that's its limited government. It's limited to these certain roles and that's it. And the, the roles are basically the military and foreign affairs, hmm. uh, you know, trade, immigration, foreign policy. And it's a pretty small, it's a pretty, by that time, a lot of these liabilities are gone, right? Social security, the debt, it's all been inflated into oblivion. And so everything, so, you, so you, all you do is you write into writing, you know, just have a, a omnibus bill that you pass in Congress, which will be whatever. I don't know who knows what the political parties will be, but it'll be a conservative party. You just say, we're going to all that stuff, all that great society stuff, all that welfare stuff, social security, Medicare, blah, 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 gone. As of tomorrow, we cancel all the programs, which then puts the responsibility on the state. So they don't necessarily disappear entirely, but then the states do it, which is the original design of the constitution. And then once you've done that, you've just slashed spending by 80%. So what happens? You don't have to print money anymore because you don't need the money. And then you can have a major reform of taxes because your demands are much smaller. So you implement whatever it is, 8% federal VAT, no more income taxes, no more payroll taxes, just, I I prefer VAT, but it could be a national sales tax or something like that. And that massively stimulates productive activity. Yes, yes. And I kind of wonder what's the political process to get there. We've already seen this happen. So there was hyperinflation in both Germany and Japan in the late 1940s, both under US occupation. The military had already taken over. So they were running the show and they were printing money to fund the governments. And they, so the first thing they did is they came in and they made, they passed the law, no more deficit spending. In law, you know, black letter law. The, you have to get the money in, in the bank account before you spend it. It's not complex. Not complex. Both Germany and Japan did that. And so once you did that, the pressure on the central bank to print the money was gone because they didn't spend the money until they got the money. In fact, Napoleon did the same thing when he came to France in 1799. So once the central bank was freed from that political pressure, the next step is they went to the gold standard. Yeah. Or in, in you know, indirect gold standard, they, they pegged the currencies to the dollar. So that is, and, and then the next thing that both Germany and Japan did is they had huge tax reforms where tax rates came down dramatically by the standards of the time. I, I think we should just have a, have a big reform where you just get rid of everything and just have something like a federal VAT. And it's not just a daydream, it's how it's actually happened mm-hmm. in Germany and Japan and France, arguably Napoleon to some degree in China. So it's not silly. So if you just have that, I think... When the time comes, you're going to have a plan. <laughs> I, I like to say we spent, everyone's frustrated because they've been talking and talking for decades about all these wonderful sort of conservative, small government themed ideas that have no political reality. Hmm. But when the time comes, you're going to have a solution. You're not going to have decades to talk about it anymore. <laughs> sure. You're just going to have to do it. <laughs> I have a strong uh, feeling that, that it probably is not going to be 
a very long time before we find out. And I want to thank you as always for your time. I love these conversations and I get to listen to them again. I listen to them several times, but I want to encourage everybody to check out the Polaris letter on Substack and just go to Substack, get behind what Nathan's doing. It's uh, it's just such a, I love reading it. I laugh, I learn. I really do. You've got a great way of writing. It's rare to be able to synthesize complex ideas and make them interesting and amusing at the same time. Otherwise, New World Economics, like people can still find you there, newworldeconomics.com. But Mr. Nathan Lewis, thank you so much for joining us again on the Supply Side Podcast. Thank you, Jonathan pleasure and hopefully we'll talk again soon we'll do it again soon well hey everybody jonathan back with you once again i really hope you did enjoy that great discussion with nathan lewis always a real pleasure to have him on the show i learn so much every single time it's a great privilege just to spend time with so many great guests that have such a depth of knowledge and insight and so many years learning studying experiencing this whole great realm of global macro finance so listen please make sure you've subscribed to the show i'm going to get back to hopefully producing an episode a week with some really great guests already booked in so hit subscribe wherever you're listening everything else is on the website supplysidepartners.com and uh, we're putting stuff on youtube now too so you'll see the video for this one with nathan if you just come across to youtube and do a search for supply side or the supply side podcast with jonathan doyle you're going to find us in there so uh, i like using youtube for this sort of stuff Uh, it really gives me a chance to concentrate and uh, see the faces behind the audio see who we're actually talking to so listen i really hope you've enjoyed it thanks for supporting the show i'd love if you could share this with other like-minded interested people but for now that's it till next week my name's jonathan doyle this has been the supply side podcast and we look forward to welcoming you back very soon